0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another exciting episode of the Tech Disruptors Podcast. My name is Anurag Grana and I'm joined here with my colleague, Tamlin Bates. Both of us are technology analysts at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're excited to have the CTO of STL Tech, Kalyan Kumar, or KK, as our guest today. We want to dive into a little bit of the background of the company, KK, and, and your background
1: as well, please. Thanks, Anurag. Thanks, Tamlin, for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, HCL Tech part of HCL Corporation or HCL Group. The origins of HCL goes back to 1976 as a garage startup, uh, and it's been uh, the first true India-origin garage startup. It started out when the country was in a socialist era. It was like we had to pretty much build everything on our own, our own systems, hardware, software, operating system, databases, so the, the core DNA of the company was always engineering, product deep understanding of building products, engineering, and then building partnerships. That's been the core ethos of how HCL evolved. It went just built through various partnerships and joint ventures. HCL Technologies, or what we now call as HCL Tech, and got really formed in real sense in around 1999, uh, 97 to 99, those years, and we really went mainstream uh, over a period of time about 2007, 08, and then that's when the main evolution happened. So. HL tech in its current form is not as much like a lot of the other traditional India IOPs who were formed and were consistently in the same business for a long period of time. We've been in a very evolutionary model business of HL Tech, we do four things. We are a global technology solutions company and we are in two major segments of businesses. Majority of our business, 85% of our business is services. And there are two big services play IT and business services and engineering and R&D services. These are the majority. We have a separate division which is branded operated completely in a very armstead like, independent way called HCL Software. This is our software products business of HCL which works out in the market, has 15,000 plus customers, was built through organic and acquisitions, and and it's up on more than a half million dollars business. and, And it's completely reported and operated externally. It's shown as two separate divisions, but they're part of the HCL tech family. We've been on a very interesting journey. Core HCL tech, we basically do digital engineering and cloud. That's what we say. And software is software. So helping customers do digital foundation, digital business, digital engineering, and then use cloud as a lever to be able to uh, drive the whole piece. 220,000 plus employees 60 plus countries across the globe. Fairly diverse team uh, operating across various different markets. We typically hire and groom a lot of, nurture a lot of local talent in different countries. She operates our our delivery structure is more distributed and and, and fairly global. Uh, You wanted to to talk about myself. I've been with Excel for 23 years now. being in fairly various different roles in this company. Uh, So I've been involved from the time when we were not known as much. Uh, We still think we uh, still have a long way to go to make ourselves more aware. We are on off. We are a good secret. It's not getting out. People are trying to know who we are, but uh, that's been with me. I live in London. And other than in tech, I've got a dabbling off. I used to be a part-time musician, and then if I'm not being in this business, I would have been a first-class cricketer. I would have been to do that before somehow I get into tech. So that's that's me. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> absolutely wonderful, KK. So one wh- of the things
0: I wanted to talk about, which is the you know on the industry point on everybody's mind right now is the macro backdrop. You know, we have had some very good years over the last, I would say, four or five years of good technology spending across the board. Obviously, cloud's been all over the place in terms of rapid growth, but now we are seeing some deceleration in tech spending. So perhaps Mm -hmm. take us through the journey as where do you think things stand right now? Where do
1: you think it's going to go? And then we'll expand on that. See, the way I look at technology spending and the way I've been seeing this, and this is my hypothesis, is that we, and, and, and when you pick up an ET or tech trends report, we have the story that you start from the modern evolution of the modern world, from the mercantile age, the industrial age, to the information age, to the digital age, to what now we call it the tech decade, Right? Technology has always been a core enabler. But never, ever, I think I always, like you have AD and BC when the world history is divided. I think we should draw a line called pre-COVID and post-COVID. I think it's very, very important because that has been a very interesting transition line of how companies adopted technology. So a lot of the massive digital acceleration and cloud, for me, cloud is a utility. It's like if you are considering power, water, cooling, fundamental infrastructure for where you live in a society. In a digital world, cloud is the foundation. How cloud could be different? Public, private, sovereign, hybrid, edge, telco edge, hyperscaler edge. It doesn't matter. Those are the deployment models. So that line, which is where we see is that we saw a lot of massive acceleration on technology adoption. Is many businesses which were operating in a certain format became hybrid, in some cases remote. So you saw this huge... Significant tech spend or tech acceleration, but you need we need to start looking at tech in three ways one is IT, BT, and OT. So, I don't use the word digital by design because uh, sometimes I realize that we use this digital word too much. Sometimes I realize what would be before analog, before the whole world was digital. So, I think it's about information technology, which is IT required for that's SGNA cost, okay, cost below the. It's like you take it as a cost input. Then there is business technology, which is technology's cost, correct? Cost of goods sold. It's like, it's like many of the tech decisions are being done in a very different way. We are building commerce or systems, which are more revenue systems. And then you have OD spend, which is operations technology, which is direct cost, not indirect cost, direct cost. Hence, the tech decision is traditionally the always we always would say ID equal to CIO, but it's in many companies going through evolution. Let's say the telecommunications industry, the telco, there's this new role called the CTIO. It's basically that they're converging the network leader and the IT leader in under one, and basically they're reimagining how they're operating because their whole digital network is getting converged, correct? Right. It's happening in every industry. You have the CDAO roles. Uh, like in your industry, like US though, but data is going to be center of what you do because of the data, research, content. So the, the CDO, CDAO, there will there, be fair evolution. So hence, everyone is in the tech business. So hence, what we look at is the acceleration of big hump which happened around just around the midst of COVID. to now it's reached a point where every company is on a hybrid remote. They've got all the base this thing. Now, the real spending on tech is all around, okay, IT spend will continue to do what it has to do, correct? IT enablement. But it's all about business technology. So, there are a lot of customers that we are seeing where continuing to realign their spending priorities and saying, I'm going to spend on technology, but I'm going to take costs out somewhere else in a very different way. But I'm going to use tech as a big differential. The companies are looking at tech in BT and OT is where we are seeing the spend shifting. Traditional IT spend might look up and down, but that's the way I really things. see this.
0: I've gone through, uh, I've also covered this space for close to 23 years now, and I have gone through many recessions in that time frame. you know, going back to Y2K, and uh, every time there's a big disruption, the Indian IT services firm come out of it, you know, much stronger. What's your take on why that happens, and what do, where do you think, you know, we go from here uh, over the next
1: couple of years? I think, it's, to be fair, I think, yes, obviously, the, the big six from the India headquarters uh, firms, they're fairly global now. But I think, yeah, it's the same. I would pick the top 15 across the globe, correct? Uh, and maybe uh, there are different shapes and forms. It all depends upon where the company was when the disruption happened, correct? If you look at a lot of the traditional IDO infrastructure outsourcers who were asset-heavy Got yeah. really disruptive because of the cloud, because the way their model. So we were one of the largest infrastructure outsourcing providers, but we were operating in a very different operating model. We were not asset heavy; we asset light, but we we're doing helping customers more. Finance cloud became an additive for us. Okay. When companies were doing large scale staffing and TMM business model we were mostly doing engineering services. And then when the world was moving from Y2K onwards, HCL Tech from our perspective, you are not in that, you we were doing more large middleware application, modernization, integration. We were in doing large SAP programs. So, so our evolution has been a bit different. So hence at every pivot point where things change, our ability to use that to pivot into a newer model was always in there. Now I really, the way I really look at this the demand for tech talent is at the maximum possible scenario which we can see today. You go, ahead and I'll give an example. Most of the companies, whether you are India origin or you are a US or a European origin, their largest employee footprint actually is in India. See, so all yeah. these companies put together, they have more employees in India than even India IOPs. You know, many times people don't realize the amount of footprint. The demand of tech talent is just exploding, which clearly shows that customers service providers, even the India domestic market, which we have to keep in mind that it's that's growing at about 8% as a GDP, it's its latest. Going in a completely different direction. If you, I was in Davos last week, a few weeks back, and it was not just the India house. Now you're seeing a Tamil Nadu house and a UP house. like states are putting up pavilion saying that I'm bigger than many of these countries around. Correct? Mm-hmm. So there is a different equation happening there. So I think in India, the tech demand is exploding. The skill set demand is extremely in there, but we've got a big problem on our and Tamil is that the profile of skills we have today versus the demand, there is a there is a mismatch. What's, you need us, so hence people modernization. Everyone is talking about tech modernization, app modernization, data modernization, infrastructure modernization. I think there's a very important lever called people modernization. Someone has to modernize the people and carry them along and move them from point A to point B. And so I think we are in the right place for us to any company, whichever company has the right people modernization strategy of how you take people along is going to be the one which will yeah. hoop over the disruption.
0: You know, perhaps we dive into this a little bit. And I'm on the same page as you about the shortage of skilled labor globally across all, I would say, bases of technologies, whether it's in security or cloud or you, you name it. But we get this question quite a bit when we talk to investors and other people is all these tech companies in the U.S. are doing this big layoff. The attrition rate with the India-based companies is through the roof. How do I reconcile
1: those two things? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think in my view, some, this could be more in the U.S. tech sector of late, where we might have overhired capacity or in many cases also could be people with not the right skills. Or it is that skill mismatch. It's not the demand mismatch. If you see there is layoffs happening in some of these companies, but they're also hiring, which effectively means that the people have not been able to modernize from A to B and they are being poor. And many times you've ended up hiring. And I think that's where I think it's a different principle of sustainable growth, correct? Some of these some of these companies because they've just burned so much cash and just been on hiring. Yeah. This thing when some some level of realignment needs to be done, you don't know where is where to get that cost uh, lever. So hence, uh, you're able to do that. In India headquarter or any global IT services or engineering services firm, the customer demand is not changing as much. Obviously, the customers are also tapering adjusting their demands. Obviously, you are growing at this much. You might have come down a little bit here and there. But the demand is continuing to be there. Attrition problem, actually the India attrition problem, a lot of the challenges you see with India attrition problem is not got to do with IT services. It's got to do with the India domestic market. See, you look at the kind of spend, the tech spend, uh, which is happening, the number of fintechs. Uh, I was just reading a recent report which says that it's now become the second largest SaaS ecosystem in the world after the US. A number of companies are being born out of there. And- and then just the addressable market is bigger than some continents. The entire America's population is is, is smaller than the addressable consumable middle class population in India. So that was also a big factor in terms of people finding better opportunities. And I also believe that this whole, people are so used to working remotely. They Many of them moved to a different location and a lot of those pieces now, this whole hybrid world, people, a lot of them don't want to come back to work. Funny enough, I was talking to a, Accountant of mine in Brentwood in Essex, in mean, England, he's been bailing and loathing, saying that, no, he was, he was complaining about, saying that, I put in a policy saying that I'm an accounting firm doing tax accounting. I need people to come in and work with the senior advisors, partners, they learn a few things. These guys don't want to come to work. And when I force them to come to work, they just disappear. We're saying, how do I teach them the trade? It cannot teach them everything remote. They have to work, understand how things happen. So these things are also adding up. The, the, the newer crown, it's a Gen Z plus. They just have a very different benchmark of who you are and what the income. So it's, All these factors are adding up to attrition, It's not just that the company is trying to do something different.
0: No, I I, I agree with you, KK. We're smiling on it because we are everybody's going through the same pains at this point. All right, let's pivot a little bit to multi-cloud because this is an area where philosophically I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. And by the way, I am also in the same boat. I treat public cloud infrastructure as a utility. And you know, for my for my rationale, that's how it should be. It will be down the road as well. But tell me one thing, if I'm a company today and I'm developing an application um, and I choose one of the cloud providers, for example, essentially I'm pretty much, uh, you know, locking in that cloud provider for a very long period of time. So when will we start seeing that same application being hosted on, you know, multiple clouds? When will we see a world where just like a utility, every company will pivot to one cloud and have the backup on another cloud? Now it
1: cost a lot of money, but what's your take on it as how is that going to evolve? I think sometimes I always believe that we have to unravel and go back to simplicity. And that's why you always learn things from sports and bring it to tech. I always do that That's so one of my core. This has been a utopian dream in IT. From the time it started off from the mainframe to distributed to client server, I want this unlocking, even open source, correct? The world's biggest open yeah. source business model is Red Hat. Yeah, you are free to go and download SendOS and use it. Correct? But the moment you need support, you have to go and start working in that model. So people, Many a times, this whole mindset of oh, I want to be open. So the question is, what's open? So which means you're building on a database. Let's say, hypothetically, you have MongoDB on which you have your stuff, or you're building it on one of our HCL software databases, which is uh, um, Zen. Do you want the database to be ported across clouds, or do you want the choice to move off the database? See, that? Yeah. or do you want to use an app server, and do you want to make the app server move across locations, or do you want to port the application? So the big issue which is in there in, in cloud, if I were an enterprise, I would go back and first segment my whole, that whole hypothesis I have called the IT OT. What is this app? ID app. What, is, what does it do? I'm doing collaboration. I'm going to use Teams or Zoom or Google Meet. Do I need to really worry about building a differentiated technology which is so, will, you, will, will me using a Teams or a Meet or a Zoom differentiate how I do business? maybe 9 out of 10 times the answer is no, then can I just go and consume? So I have this philosophy, we have this philosophy of consume, configure and build. So first consume or CAM, which is really standardized. Then you do configure, configure, like I want to build, I want to deploy an HCM system. Can I go to SuccessFactors or Workday? Just go and consume and configure on top of that based on the employee processes and use this. it makes sense for me to build an employee hcm system maybe talent management skill management for a services company yes i might want to build a custom differentiated system the way i want to manage to do that then there are systems which are business differentiating which means portability avoid having interoperability things which really matter differentiated system so hence you cannot have the tail wag the dog you have it's the app which chooses the cloud you have to have a very clear strategy of what you're building or what. And then you decide whether I want to really, doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. If I want to be really true portable, then I need to ensure I'm not using any native services of the hyperscaler, which effectively means that you're ending up building the whole stack. You could build on the virtual machine or build on the Kubernetes environment, K8, build everything on your own, create your own builds, and then you have the flexibility. That's a choice and I think companies are not, they always get caught into this multi-cloud play without understanding why multi-cloud. If you could choose a single hyperscaler and if you could architect your core IP on top of that, if that makes sense. Most of the companies, let's say Microsoft, Everyone is on M365 in a big way. Now you could say, am, am I locked on M365? Answer is yes. But the moment you go to Europe, it's a completely different conversation in certain markets because they're saying, okay, it's, it's, it's data, GDPR, so many other factors. So one has to de- define. So I don't think there is a universal mantra that you should go multi-cloud. You should do multi-cloud if it makes sense for your business applications of what you, you want to achieve.
0: Let me ask my last question and then let me uh, pass it over to Tamlin right after that. A lot of discussion right now about AI, chat GPT, open AI. You know, what's your thesis? What's
1: that going to do to the services industry? Nothing. My biggest worry is that we have more AI. You see, okay, what has ChatGPT and OpenAI done? Obviously, it's got some little bit of big social and marketing push. You look at between Siri, Google Assistant, and Alexa in the last three years, you have been surrounded. Look at my then look at my Pixel phone or my iPhone. The amount of AI which intelligence which exists, you see this photo correction capability you have in the Google Pixel, correct? The kind of things you could do the... What people don't realize that we have so much AI which is being surrounding each one of us. What JPT has done is it's just bought a conversational iterative interface to search. Actually, if you type anything on a Google search, you get responses back. Here it is a conversational response system, correct? It is still using, surprisingly enough, the original invention of transformer model was in Google research. It came out of the, the, the GPT model. actually was a Google's research model which on which OpenAI built this whole thing and evolved it over a period of time into the newer Model 3 of transformer. But the fact is, it's good. What ChatGPT has done, it's opened up a very large possibility of people to think how they can apply. But unfortunately, the way it happened with blockchain is that people forgot the blockchain, everyone ran behind Bitcoin. Correct. And they got to this thing. The same thing has happened in chat GPT. Oh, it's doing homework. It's trying to do this. It's sent oh, I mean, that just the whole conversation was about, oh, can it do half of a journalist's job? Oh, and it's all kind of fun. It's like, I think the core philosophy should be AI assisting humans. It's about how do you create a human machine partnership? Can ChatGPT help me do my job better? Maybe really? yes, there's a lot on use cases. So people have to start thinking from that perspective. So we have to teach every one of us, starting from kids in K-12 to professionals in this continuous learning model of how you could take this and apply it and use it in your job in a better way. So AI technology is going to continue to be around us. It's not going to go away. Uh, and you'll find a way to better use it. I know, that's good. That's good. Uh, all right, okay, okay. I'm going to pass the mic to somebody
0: who cannot be replaced by ChatGPT. Uh, my colleague, Tamlin.
2: Thanks a lot, Anurag. And uh, KK, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit um, about ATL Tech, a little bit, telling into the details a little bit. And first, going back to the cloud discussion that you and Anurag were having, I'm at the Analyst Day in December. Your CEO mentioned sort of having strong partnerships with all of the hyperscalers. Yep. Um, I was hoping that you could give us a little bit of insight into how those partnerships have developed are developing and also
1: what your role is in maintaining those relationships. So you see our entire pitch, which our CEO talked about in the Investor Day, the services, and he put in this whole thing called Cloud Smart and the Ecosystem. We have a very stated ecosystem strategy. We believe that ecosystems are the mindset of, I want to do everything versus can we do everything together? This is a big shift. The classic services ma- mindset was, I'm the prime systems integrator. I'll try to do everything and I'll bring everyone as a subcontractor. From that mindset to we'll move towards orchestrated model at different states in a customer journey Germany, life cycle, different people will take leadership or take the prime ownership to deliver. So for us, the whole strategy was around curated ecosystem. So we had this three point ecosystem strategies so about how do you build strategic alliance partner ecosystem? A startup ecosystem and an industry forum ecosystems so how do you engage in industry forums like webs and OC and, CS and things like that the open community the edge innovation the startups that's where a lot of things are happening they're fast they're trying to solve problems but they need enterprise large customer access how do you work with them the third is about large strategic cloud and SaaS partners who are tech OEMs and within that we had the cloud players the tech OEMs and the telcos so we really created those three within the So our strategy is we have created dedicated business units by each one of these large ecosystems, which cut across all our businesses. They cut across our digital foundation, digital business, digital engineering, also support software as an ISV. So either HCL operates as a GSI and MSP and engineering service providers and OEM or an ISV. We are able to work across these ecosystems, which is Microsoft, Google, Cloud, AWS, Red Hat, IBM Red Hat, Dell, Intel, Cisco, VMware, SAP, some of this large uh, Salesforce uh and some of these providers, and really start to create an ecosystem around that. And then also, we're picking, working with smaller focused telcos. We've done, announced a big thing with Verizon in the US. We operate with Proximus. We're building up all of these things. It's about creating a network of partnerships where we can collectively go and help deliver value for the customer. No more
2: Great. Picking uh, up again on, on sort of what you were talking about, Dan-Rang, sort of the uh, before COVID, after COVID, especially in terms of sort of the enterprise embracing the cloud. Can you talk a little bit more about how that sort of migration, the embrace of the cloud has changed and how the cadence of of those updates have changed in the past, I guess, let's net three years now?
1: There was a lot of question pre-COVID about why cloud, want cloud. What happened in, in midst of COVID is that everything was about how cloud, correct? And just how to use it and how to make sure it's so the why and the what is gone. What's now happening is because a lot of companies have walked into the cloud, they they what they missed on a few things is like, it's like we have a software product which we created which, is, which helps customers do FinOps better. So people have just gone massively. Now they're trying to understand how I'm how can I better use it, optimize it, right shape it, right size it, right allocate. It. Because traditional IT budgetings were always done on CapEx. Correct? And then that's whole shift towards that whole model of consumption. Correct? So I think that's the extra delta, but I think the move has been taken. Look at the, just the backlog of all this four hyperscale, three big hyperscale, over $100 billion. They have customers, committed contracts. They have now have to be converted to revenue for them, which means that someone has to do the migration, modernization, and operations of the whole landscape. So hence, there is a huge tail of business which exists, but it's about how do you actually that whole thing together.
2: And then, just drilling a little bit into it by sort of in market user, have you noticed? Have there been any sectors that maybe were a little bit slower to sort of embrace these uh, sort of put more stuff in the hybrid cloud, and and
1: maybe that that tone has changed a little bit? You know, I think the way I really see this is that most of the consumer services, customer facing industries have started to adopt this significantly faster. It's been a little bit, a tad bit slower in insurance, for example. But it's picking it up in a financial services has a lot of complexity, but they are pushing the edge on how they want to really use the cloud. There are new deployment models. Not everything would go into the cloud model, so this whole explosion of the edge is happening because the cloud's fundamental philosophy is I centralize the compute to bring the data to the compute, whereas the new model is that, okay, I can't bring all the data to the compute. Can I bring the compute closer to the data? Which, which effectively means that you're creating this more distributed model of deployment. That in essence is making customers think in terms of how the adoption model across industries is. Even look at telcos. Telcos have huge infrastructure capacity they are building to create the edge or the MECs and other pieces. But some of the telcos are deploying their network functions mm-hmm. on top of a hyperscaler edge. What you're seeing with happening with some of the telcos across the globe in their 5G deployment. So, so I would say there isn't an industry, obviously, Federal has a different deployment model with the gov cloud kind of a mechanism in europe we are seeing still a big push towards sovereign so we just just whole need to creating a the sovereign cloud so i think that's the way i really uh, see i don't see that as an industry more than an industry it's a workload many of the times like customers are realizing based on the workload type of what it is yes. uh, and, and i think and more and more with one big thing is a lot of large companies running on sap and sap the whole RISE proposition or RISE with SAP, that core moving to a cloud is making sure every other app is getting pulled along with that migration. So it's about moving the core and and more and more the companies are moving towards the core. And that, that's going to be a very interesting evolution pattern.
2: You touched on 5G there and, and actually that's great So I want to sort of jump into 5G a little bit more. How are you sort of helping clients to prepare to sort of leverage 5G in, in their own industries? And also, are you seeing any more collaboration between the telecom carriers? Rolling out, out
1: 5G in the industry, who so are going to then build on that, sort of make it their own for their own purpose. So, so from an HCL tech standpoint, so we, and also from HCL software standpoint, so we have we serve the operators, the telcos. So we have core capabilities of telco cloud. Network RAM services where we help them build out this and operate this infrastructure. So we have a very core proposition working with the telcos as a partner with them to help them build, design, deploy, and operate their infrastructure, both legacy operations and new build outs and other pieces because the skill sets required to do this whole. Software-defined network, virtual network functions need more softwareization skills along with telco networking skills. So then, how do you take this technology and help do enterprise network modernization? How do you modernize an enterprise network which allows you to consume? You're seeing that whole shift towards Wi-Fi 6, private 5G, private LTE evolving to private 5G and beyond. Is yes, companies are realizing, hey, I'm not looking for upgrading my campus network. I'm looking at deploying a new factoring network, do I need to do Wi-Fi only? Is that the only way to look at different things? Should I own the spectrum? Should I lease a spectrum? Should I ask an operator to accept That's the reason if you've seen our ecosystem strategy, the tech OEM and the telco are becoming a very interesting play because we have to bring them into the play because spectrum is licensed in many parts of the world, so which means you have to use the telco to build them. But then what are the use cases how do you put them together and help deliver to an enterprise? So we're really seeing both sides. There's a third angle. We are very large. We are one of the largest I think three out of five mobile calls made in the world, we do the engineering services for all the GSM operators, GSM equipment manufacturers. So we are also an engineering services provider to a lot of the network equipment manufacturers. So we are in the mix of converting that piece. So we have a very unique perspective of the net view, the telco operator view, and the enterprise view, and we're trying to bring them together. 5G, if you see our ETO tech transfer we talk about those two big, six big things. we we talk about ubiquitous cloud and connectivity at scale. Cloud at is everywhere. You have cloud access and then you have connectivity. You need extremely good connectivity to be able to consume a lot of this cloud capability. 5G, it's got to be utility. Cloud and this is you. Will, you gotta will expect this to be taken for granted. In many countries, they have shut off 3G networks now. You can't even use 3G devices anymore. And if you really want to see the power of some of these things, go to Asia. You see what's happening with mobile in Asia. It's, it's, it's like unimaginable that companies are running businesses which are completely mobile-based. And hence, I think mobility is the way forward. So 5G adoption will happen at scale. Obviously, in the telco world, when you deploy an infrastructure, a radio infrastructure, you don't take 10 years, 15 years to recover it. So I think people will extract the best value of what they've done. They just deployed 3G networks, which have have lived a good life. 4G is still in there. People deployed 4G and 4G LTE to a good extent. Now, I think 5G upgrades, they're going to have this 5GNR, which is our backward compatibility to the spectrum and they start using it in a more efficient way. So I think it's going to be a big, big, big play.
2: And then uh, metaverse is another thing that, that you know, obviously over the next handful of years is going to go one way or another. I think people also are still looking at possible use cases especially at the enterprise level. Um, but interoperability is sort of a, a key thing there. How do you see it, sort of the interoperability playing out over the next years? And then as an implementer, How does HCL Tech sort of position itself to work with enterprises to create immersive experiences, sort of regardless of maybe how interoperability plays out?
1: So I think you use the right word. So we, we call it XR. So it's basically immersive experiences, or we use the word called limitless experience. See, I think for us, metaverse is just one manifestation. Metaverse would become significantly important especially in, in especially in gaming and and some of those aspects and also in some cases even for training and a lot of those scenarios digital twins and those kind of aspects that's when it's going to be really become a real play but this mixed experience across AR VR XR mr all the pieces together that's going to be real that's real stuff it is happening one of the things people have quickly realized that I think three out of five people in the universe in, in the planet have a lot of issues they have, fundamentally visual sight issues by wearing those complex uh, heavy lenses correct people have orientation issues people which it's, it's hard you can't wear that thing and just move around for 30 minutes or more you become dizzy people have them which it's a genuine issue you can't st- it's not gonna it's not practical it's good you can play you can do it for a certain t- so hence there has to be different form factors i know i, I remember google tried to fixed this many years back with the Google Glass, but they got it wrong purely because of the way it's going to be done. Look at what Raven, one of our customers in our software business, uh, Luxottica, they're doing this with Raven Stories, correct? they built a very nice glass just targeted towards uh, Instagrammers, correct? So they're going to click, click moments, all that stuff. You want to see different applications and different use cases. Microsoft with HoloLens, we're seeing a bigger adoption in certain industries, correct, which you're trying to see. Metaverse will continue to evolve. I think it will start to become more prevalent in the consumer gaming world significantly. It will start to pick up in the training and those areas. Employee onboarding, it could be a good, it could be an attachment. It's like, it'll be like a copilot kind of a model. But the usage of this has to be thought through in a more uh, different way. I think AR is going to be significantly useful. I think AR has a built building use case in terms of this merging of, I, I I use this word called digital about How do you bring physical and digital worlds together? I think AR and and MR would have a significant play in that. I think this is going to be extremely important. So Focus experience, not the worst. And I also think this portability issue has got a lot to do with Web3 evolution. Traditionally, the whole web has been built around platforms, launched information internet, and the Web2.0 was around the mobile, social internet, launched platforms. Once you get to decentralized distributed model, you would need to start to then figure out ways and means. It's still a way away. I think there's some very interesting stuff. There's a this small startup called Polkadot, which basically they are creating a blockchain connectivity network. Very, very interesting. So they don't own the chains. They they actually create connectivity chains Can connect multiple blockchain networks. You can be on Ethereum network, you can be on some other network and, and you could connect. I think things like that would start to evolve or, or to happen. Because let's say I buy an NFT on one network. How do I port this onto others? So it's going to be a lot of those things. And how this whole thing works is, is is something which people have to start to evolve and build around this. That is it, 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 but it'll happen. There'll be significant rapid evolution. But I think experience centricity is going to be more important than the words itself.
2: That's right. It's going to be a very interesting next few years in that space, I believe. Okay, okay, I'm going to turn a little bit to HCL software, which I, I think this is a bit of a differentiator among the yeah. peers. So could you sort of broadly walk us through what that is and, and sort of what the long-term
1: roadmap for that business is? HCL Software is our software products division of HCL Technologies. It was formatted. There's always been different software products businesses, which was within HCL. We had Dry Eyes, which was an automation software business. We had industry software. We had a joint venture with Silver Lake, which was Actium. And then we had the classic HCL software, which came out of a lot of Intellectual property we acquired from IBM, commerce, marketing, Unica, BigFix, a lot of those pieces. And then over the time, we also got Kony, a few other assets. But what we've done now is we brought all of them together under one umbrella. It's a $1.4 billion plus business, 15,000 plus customers, 132 countries, 8,000 plus people across the globe we have 700 plus business partners. This business is branded and structured and operated very differently. And I, along with another CR, Raji, we run this business together and it's completely independent. It's been designed to run in a fairly independent way. The core theme of what we do in HCL software is we have products which are highly reliable and scalable, which can help fuel the digital plus economy of our customers. And we operate in four different stacks. We have software which enables digital transformation. Within that, we have CX, everything to do with customer experience, and commerce, marketing, service, cloud, and that whole life cycle. The second piece is around unified application development. We have the world's largest low-code, low-code application platform, which exists today. We've also given a roadmap to every large Domino customer, which has more than 8 million applications, a migration path to a unified application development platform. We have the second is data analytics and insight, the whole Actian portfolio, hybrid cloud data warehouse, hybrid data, allowing the customer a choice of how they want to do deploy data, across cloud, on-prem, edge. The third is we've got intelligent automation. We have the whole dry ice stack, big fix, value stream management, worker automation, and the whole software stack, it allows customers to help better use AI ops to run their. IT operations and business operations and business observability in a more intelligent way. And then we've got focused solutions on security. And then you've got this whole ability to do this in industry solutions. And we have got three big industries where we are focused on. One is telecommunications, where we've got ability to do software, engaged automation in the telco network, but also do the digital life cycle for telco. So we're fairly large in financial services. And the third is government. Some of the largest federal, European government, in Asia governments, a lot of solutions to enable sovereign cloud. So we really see sectoral wise, financial services, telecommunications, government, and then we've got a big play in consumer services and B2B, both on B2B and B2C in retail because of our commerce platform. Last year we pumped in $270 billion of transactions on our commerce platforms. It's a very, very robust, reliable, scalable platform. We deliver one third of all marketing messages across the globe on our unique platform. So it's, it's a very built for scale and reliability. What we're doing in the business is we are doing a couple of things. One is every product has a hybrid choice of cloud deployment. Customer could deploy it in a cloud environment of their choice or they could consume it as SaaS. We're making sure that every product is easy to consume, both functionally, technically, but also commercially. We want to build a software company which is about easy to consume. And the third is, it's all focused around a lot of good customer success and customer centricity. And we are creating some very differentiated business models. It's in very early stages. I think it's hugely differentiating because we are creating a completely non-linear business within HL Tech, it, it, it's completely different business model. It's not going to scale based on that. And it also help us work with a different ecosystem. We operate with this. So the hyperscalers now see us as an ISV on their, this thing. We work with a lot of partners in software who compete with HCL Tech Services. So it's, got, it's a completely different evolution, but that's how we really want to build it out. Uh, I think uh, it's highly strategic and for our CEO and the chairperson, it's, it's, it's driven in a very, very strategic way.
2: Great. Uh, it will be interesting to see how that develops. Uh, we're nearing the end, so I just want to ask a few uh, rapid fire questions, which we do at the end of the podcast. You can ask a few and, uh, you know, keep them as short as you can. So first, you sort of mentioned this hiring services isn't having the layoffs, but hiring definitely is slowing. The question is, how do you balance sort of that against having the bench deep enough to take advantage of demand once demand pops back and accelerates as global headwinds ease? How is that balancing playing out?
1: Yeah, I think we are a big believer in building organic talent. So, I think the traditional challenge in this industry has been people hiring off each other. What you've done is you've increased the average resource cost up. We are all about building new talent. So, we with our tech b program, and we are now we're taking high schoolers and creating an apprenticeship kind of a model where we invest in their education over the next five years, give them a global a, a, a proper degree, but also make them more productive and relevant and teach them in modern skills. So, we want going to add, infuse more capacity and build. That in that way, so I think rather than trying to just keep hopping, you hire the relaxals, but only very limited. The goal is to really build new talent because all these new technologies, you mm-hmm. need to train people anyway, so you could train fresh that talent as much well as you can train existing talent.
2: The question on ESG: What's the client uptake in sort of turning to you for technological solutions to help them reduce their own emissions? And then, are you able to apply any of those breakthroughs to help HCLs own sort of ambitions yep. on green, off gas reduction? Emissions?
1: We have a, our chief sustainability officer. Sustainability is a board agenda. We drive it top down. It's very, very core cool to our chairperson, our CEO, and it's being driven from the board top down. So we are highly committed to a lot of activities around sustainability. We are on the path to the net zero on our own, uh, the net zero goals. We're two inter- platforms. One is the NEO, the Net Zero Intermediate Operations, and then our Sustainability 360, which is our technology solutions, which have one is more around financial tracking and measurement and metrics of sustainability. And the second is about the OD side of sustainability of how you get metrics and make things better. Uh, we're doing the same thing on software products, we're building energy savings and a lot of those different capabilities which allow them to do things better in certain industries and markets. The clock of sustainability, and I was talking a while back to someone is yes. it has to be baked in and i think real value and sustainability is got to come in when you make it an accounting standard and our chief sustainability officer talks about this concept called cap and tax how do you cap emissions and then how do you tax and create some benefit i think it has to be baked into how companies start to think and maybe the accounting standards and things evolve at some point in time because this is one area which we strongly believe that any action you do it's not what you're going to see, the future generations is going to see the impact, negative or positive. So I think it's extremely important that what we do, we build it for our future. So I think, uh, but customers are really concerned in a significant way. They all are looking at different ways and means too. I think it's current state is all about visibility. I need to know what I'm doing. So then I can start applying to see how I can, if the measure is the most important thing, you want to know where they are today.
2: Very interesting. And then final question. Are there any next generation technologies that you
1: think are underhyped and or overhype? My personal view on this. I'm a big believer in quantum computing as a huge potential to change things. I think that technology needs to evolve because there's a lot of noisiness in the technology. There are rates are high, but it can just open up a completely new dimension. See, think of a computer being built for math. What we built is a mathematical computer, correct? Everything is built as a math model. Think of a computer which is solving real-world physics, chemistry, and biology problems. It's got that immense potential. It will always coexist like a co-processor with the digital current computing environment. I think that's the big one. I think the other one, which I think there is a lot of hype coming in, but mostly around space travel and a lot of the space tech, but I think space tech in context of seeing a view outside from where you are and use it for both sustainability or better communication, a lot of other use. I think space tech is, is technology that's in there. I think too much hype, I think, on Metaverse, in my view, there's been a lot of hype. Web3, uh, this whole move towards decentralization, I would really say is that, Full governed to no governed to ungoverned, correct? The issue is that on the currently I mean, there are two camps. One wants to govern and control everything. The other camp wants to not be controlled. There has to be this somewhere in between, which is the ungoverned, which means that you have governance, but you have the flexibility to do things. I think that's where I think some overhype has to come down to a little bit of beyond reality.
2: That's great response. Thank you. With that, I'm going to close it off on behalf of myself and Anurag. I want to again uh, thank Kagan Kumar, Chief Technology Officer for ATF Tech for joining us and for sharing his insights uh, on this episode of Tech for Suffers. Thank you again and, and have a great afternoon.